Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Today is Capintel's co-founder and CRO, Rob Sernkovic. Capintel is a B2B wealth management platform for financial advisors and asset managers that enables them to save time and easily articulate the value of investments to their customers. Rob joined Capintel with over 10 years of B2B sales leadership experience as a former executive at Slack, Salesforce, and Plaid. He led high-performing teams focused on the financial services industry and has successfully applied his experience to build small but mighty sales teams that continue to scale quickly. Through his leadership, Capintel has inked major deals with some of the biggest names in the wealth management industry, including BMO Global Asset Management, IG Wealth Management, Canada Life, and Equitable Life. Rob, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, to learning a little bit about your journey and also to um, learning a little bit more about what Capintel does. But why don't you start off and just kind of walk me through some of your leadership growth over the, the last few years? I'm particularly interested just to hear about what it was like working at at Slack and also at uh, at Plaid. Yeah, I um I actually started my career. Um, I was a, a business student, and in Canada, um, the tech scene really hadn't taken off. Um, you know, this was 20 years ago. Rim, Rim actually, Research in Motion was really kind of the hot company, and it was really starting to kick off the the, the Waterloo sort of tech hub there. Um, so a natural place for a lot of business grads was to go into CPG. So I did that for almost 10 years. Um, and I had a, a lot of friends. Salesforce actually opened up their um, a North American office. So an office in Toronto that covered most of North America um, from like a commercial sales perspective. And I had a lot of friends that I went to school with that had went to Salesforce. They'd been there many years and were always telling me about like how great it was. Um, and finally I decided to make the jump. So I moved over to Salesforce. Um, and at the time I moved from Stanley Black and Decker. Um, I was a, a general manager for their, um, outdoor lawn and garden business. And I moved over to, to Salesforce and I was actually given the Stanley Black and Decker account. And one of the coolest experiences was, um, at Stanley Black and Decker Canada, I reported to the president and I couldn't dream of being in the same room as the CEO of Stanley Black and Decker corporate. And within like two months of me being at Salesforce, I was in a room with the CEO of, of Stanley Black and Decker corporate and talking about strategy and things. And that's what got me hooked on, on software and software sales, just to be in the room with incredible leaders like that and being mm-hmm. able to make an impact on our business. It was like tech sales all the way. That's amazing. Okay, I've got a funny story and I don't know if this name, it's only going to be a first name. Uh, 1994, I had a roommate in Toronto who was at Black and Decker and his name was Ron. Super fun guy that was in kind of this, would have been in the sales and marketing arena right around where you were there. So, so, um, Black and Decker was a, a, a really interesting place, um, because they subscribed pretty closely to the old Jack Welsh, like, you know, 20% get promoted, 20% kind of the business. Yeah. Um, so there, it was a really great place, um, to advance your career quickly. Um, but there was also a lot of, a lot, a lot of churn there. So I, I, I learned a ton in that business, but, uh, um, uh, Ron wasn't there. When I was <laughs> Not there. Name you remember. So I wish I could remember his last name because he was a great guy too. Um, 
funny about the CPG, you're the second person in two days who's talked about their CPG experience, and it doesn't come up very often because that was this kind of the space that I wanted to get into after um, after university as well. What do you think you pulled from the CPG space, the consumer packaged goods that that you still carry with you today, kind of in in growing the company? I think like the thing about CP, CPG is is um, tech sales and and tech is a little interesting, especially on the go to market side because it's it's very much like pay for performance and so you don't necessarily have to you know um be super senior to potentially accomplish some of your financial goals and different things like that or even your goals of like you know being in the same room as the ceo of stanley stanley black and decker like you can do that even as an ic within tech sales whereas um consumer packaged goods it's it's much more about kind of like moving up the chain of command and, and increasing your your purview and um, one of the the biggest things that um, you aspire to do in CPG is own a P&L. And so I was fortunate enough to own a P&L relatively early in my career. So I was, you know, under 30 years old, um, getting to dive into a P&L and make decisions around a P&L. And I think um, as you start to do enterprise sales, it's super key to understand um the business and the decisions and the um, experiences these business owners are having. So I, I was really fortunate to um, kind of have first person experience about like, do you grow sales? Do you cut costs? You know, if you're bringing new costs in, um, how do you justify that? So, so a lot of the ROI and the, the kind of the decision making behind it, I had some purview into it and I thought that was really, really helpful. Because ultimately, like what we're trying to do is enable these these business owners to either save money, um, grow their business, um, and and it's really important to mm-hmm. to have that experience or have that background. At least I found it to be really valuable. That was the key that I was hinging on as well. I was hoping you were going to go there. I wasn't really looking from it from a, a packaging or a branding perspective, which I think you also get, but. It really is owning the P&L of a business or a business unit that I think most business people don't understand. And it's astounding to me that most employees don't understand the basic P&L of a company. They just don't get it. And I think that's something that, that all leaders need to get. When, when you were with Salesforce and, and um, kind of getting into enterprise sales for the first time, were there any lessons that you picked up there that you still kind of carry with you today? Yeah. I had sort of like two versions of my career. And they were all really successful. So I was fortunate that I was at Salesforce nine years. Um, I was in a unique position that we had like club, which were different levels of, of making your number. And I was fortunate enough to make club every year and make chairman's club. So I had, you know, nine years of over delivering on my quota, both as a salesperson and as a sales leader. So, you know, my first years were, were as like a really successful IC. And um, a gentleman named Keith Block came in from Oracle to be president of distribution um, to really make Salesforce an enterprise company. And he, one of the big focuses was let's focus on financial services. Hmm. Let's fo- like talk the, the, the language of our customers. And I was fortunate enough to be given JP Morgan Chase as an account. And um, I remember kind of like doing everything you're supposed to do as a salesperson. And um, we had a deal all locked, lined up. We committed it and the deal kind of fell apart at the last minute. We're really fortunate we're able to scramble and kind of make the number. But after that, I was given a mentor. And it had kind of been like, like before the mentor was like grit, personality, um, you know, hard work, 
you know, there was, you know, hopefully there were some things I understood, but like after the mentor, I learned that like sales is a vocation and, and there's wow. an actual process to it. And, and, um, I just so much credit to some of the great leaders at Salesforce for really teaching people how to truly sell an enterprise deal. Um, and it like, it, it's a really complicated dance and, um, I, I think there are like, there's best practices, there's process and it, it's definitely repeatable if you do it in the right way. So, so for me, um, that, that sort of changed my life and the trajectory of my career was to, to really learn true enterprise sales. Okay. That's super interesting about the, about the true enterprise sales and, and, and what it is. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions around that. My, um, my wife actually was, she led all the Salesforce engineering teams for Ticketmaster. Um, oh, awesome. so, so she was on a different, different side of a similar yeah. business. So. Um, did, but I guess you went to a, a couple Dreamforce events in San Francisco. Yeah, a couple Dreamforce. And I remember like t- t- Ticketmaster and Live Nation and we had, we had some awesome, awesome customer stories around those. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. She led, uh, she led all the engineering for all of the venues for Ticketmaster. So for all the NFL sites and all the oh, wow. sites and yeah. So she got all the, all the cool perks. She got to go to everything for free all over <laughs> America. But then she was finally like, what the fuck am I doing sitting leading engineering when I don't, you know, she was, she was trying to build something that was replacing something that she just spent two years trying to build with these engineering teams. And they were already replacing it just as it launched. She's like, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Exit stage, right? Yeah. So when you're doing the, the enterprise level sales and you're working with the C-suite on these, what are some of the secrets that you can kind of pass on to others that will make it easier to do enterprise sales? Like, you know, you mentioned the vocation, which I think is just understanding it, treating it seriously and learning. But are there any couple of tricks or tips that you can give? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think it depends on the size of your organization. Like, um, I can give some perspective, maybe to start, like, would it be helpful from like a startup perspective, like from the cap and tell perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you exactly? Let's, why don't we even start? Tell us what cap and tell is. And then let's give us a couple of examples of how you've done strategic sales, um, or enterprise level sales for cap and tell. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I'd love to. So, um, we've, we've been around in market for three years. We're really fortunate um, to have had a lot of success um, already. Um, so we have 12,000 advisors and wholesalers on the platform um, already. And, and we just recently raised um, our, our first uh, funding round, a Series A, led by FinTech Collective out of New York and, and uh, Fengate Asset Management out of Canada. And ultimately, um, we're a client experience and an advisor experience tool. Our goal is really to deliver transparency um, into the process of working uh, with an advisor and a client. So right now, one of the main things that a client does is when they invest with an advisor, they're really investing in investments. They're moving their money over to put into investments. Mm-hmm. And right now, there's a, a lot of goal-based planning, which I think is the right thing to do. So when you work with an advisor, you talk about like, you know, what are my risk parameters? When do I want to retire? You know, how am I going to make retirement happen? Um, and so what our tool enables an advisor to do is really quickly compare investments that you currently have or different portfolios. And then being able to put together a proposal that combines qualitative information and quantitative information to deliver like a really good view of what that plan looks like for the um, end client. And so, you know, we've seen a ton of value that we've driven both on the advisor side, like making them more efficient and contemplating them much more as a salesperson, making their job easier. But then on the client side, 
because we've been able to combine um, qualitative information with quantitative information, like I don't know about you, but like if you see Sorrentino or R squared or all these crazy charts on your investment stuff, it doesn't mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. But if somebody says, hey, it's a you know crazy inflationary time and you need some yield because you're a balanced investor and I'm going to show you a couple things that make a whole bunch of sense to you and resonate to you personally, um, that builds a whole bunch of trust. And it makes people really understand what's going on so they can ask intelligent questions and build confidence with their advisor and, and really move some money over. So that's what Capintel does. Um, and, and we've been fortunate to focus on the enterprise and, um, already had a lot of deals. So we have three of the, the largest banks in Canada as customers, um, the largest, uh, insurance provider in Canada, one of the largest national wealth providers. Um, and then we've recently moved into the U.S. with a lot of success on, on some great, great brands in the U.S. as well, too. What's the, um, what's the, the reason that these banks are working with you? Because I would, I would have thought that they would have had stuff like this on their own already. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, they, they, they definitely do. Um, but, but I think there's a, a few things, um, that are going on within the market that makes a lot of sense for us. And I think this is part of the, the selling process of, of a startup to a, to a bank. I think one of the things you need to be able to do is really articulate a vision of where the market, where, where the market's going and, and, and where that bank needs to be. But then you need to be relatively tactical and precise about the problems you can solve for them relative to their existing tech stack and what they've built and everything like that. So for us, the vision that we see and, and it's shared very commonly across our customers is that advisors are no longer exclusively stock pickers. They need to be relationship managers and they need to be able to really deliver a great customer experience. Um, and so one of the things that we're seeing as, as a really consistent theme is that banks, um, where they traditionally would build everything now are really viewing vendor technology as a great way to quickly, um, establish client experience and, and, and really build a great stack for their advisors. And it's, by the way, it's super competitive mm-hmm. to get advisors to work at one company or another. And the tech stack is a big differentiator. Yep. So that vision is, is kind of shared and that's going on. And then we're really fortunate to have an incredible CTO and co-founder named Max. And then James is our CEO, um, and, and founder and, it's not just the go-to-market motion. It's also the product that needs to support it. So you need a scalable product, like something that's going to work for thousands and thousands of users. We also need something that's like componentized and, and integratable with API first technology. So like we know that a bank has legacy solutions here and legacy solutions here. How do we fit into them and solve the like problem in a really meaningful way? And then we also need to basically have the whole company aligned to selling to um the enterprise like product people need to be on the phone um dev people need to be on the phone security people need to be on the phone like you can't say you're an enterprise company and then security not be enterprise grade you know what i mean like so all assets of your company have to be on the same page that this is your ideal customer profile and what's it going to take to sell to them and then be fully committed it's much more of like a decision than a hope um if you're going to sell to the enterprise Wow, that's interesting. I, I like the fact that you were even talking about just the integration with some of their legacy systems. And I also think it's interesting that these big banks are finally deciding they don't need to build everything on their own. You know, 20 years ago, they were always building everything completely on their own. And then 
they didn't ever, there were always other solutions that already existed. They could have just plugged in, but they somehow just seemed to, are they doing that across the board now? Do you find that the banks are trying to plug in software, best of breed software across the board? Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like there's certain areas where it still um, is heavily homegrown, and and personally, I think it makes sense in some of those areas. Um, you know, there there's certain things around um, scale or um, security where they they the banks really want to own that. Um, but then there's areas around advisor experience, customer experience, client experience, um, onboarding where, you know, the expectation is so incongruent with the current experience that the only way to kind of get to where it needs to be, um, is through vendors, um, and picking to your point, like those best in breed solutions. And, and that's why I think it's really important as a startup. To understand kind of where you fit in that whole ecosystem, um, and really kind of align to what the vision of whatever that set, that, that persona that you're selling to is, right? Like if, if, if you understand that that persona is undergoing like some massive, you know, transformation and, and undertaking, um, you know, you need to think about how you can benefit that or accelerate that transformation rather than, you know, being like, why can't I get my two hours sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, v- versus maybe somebody where your tool can make the most material impact in the shortest amount of time, you know, th- then maybe it does make sense to really go full frontal on, on, on that engagement. So, um, I think being in tune with, with what their needs are is, is really, really important. Is it different selling into the U.S. financial services industry versus selling into the Canadian? Um, I mean, I guess there's the obvious, well, you're a Canadian company, but like once you're past that, is it different or is it the same? I think it's different. Um, I think it's much easier to sell to the U.S. Um, than it is to Canada. Um, and I think a lot of people assume that to be the, the opposite, but, um, the amount of competition in the U.S., um, I think, you know, breeds a little bit more urgency. So in, in, in Canada, you know, there, there's five major incumbents. And so uh, the, the they're exceptionally innovative and they do like really cutting edge stuff digitally, which I think is a real big benefit. Um, you know, but they also have fortress balance sheets, right? And they, they, they mitigate risk. And just naturally, you know, Canadians are a little bit more consensus driven. It has been kind of my, um, my experience. So, you know, you're always selling to multiple stakeholders and being multi-threaded is the key to any kind of enterprise deal. But in my experience, you know, if you need to talk to 20 people in the U.S., you need to talk to 45 people wow. in Canada. Um, so I think in, in, in the U.S., we found it to be a little bit quicker deal cycles. Funny, I've heard that even about West Coast Canada versus East Coast Canada. Or West oh, Coast really? Coast. No kidding. Yeah, I've heard it's much easier to sell to the people on the East Coast, like a Toronto, New York, Boston. Yeah. Because they tend to move faster, more urgency, they get shit done. And people on yeah. the West Coast are a little more laid back, a little more chill. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. So at least all the Canadian banks are all based on the East Coast. Um, a friend of mine was the one of the, the founders of a, a financial law firm in Toronto called Wildeboer Delise. And he um, they led the research in motion, uh, the RIM offering, you know, 25 years ago. And that's how they kind of cut their teeth in this space and, and use that as the entry point into a lot of U.S. deals. 
Do you find that because you started in Canada, you got in with these, you know, some of the big five banks? Has that allowed you to get in the doors of the U.S. now? Because everybody knows, you know, BMO and Bank of Nova Scotia and TD and Royal, like all those brands are really well known in the U.S. Has that opened doors for you? Um, so real quick story on, on, on the rim stuff. So, um, Blackberry had just come out when, um, we were in co-op and like, I don't know what was going on. I just, maybe I just didn't have the grades. Um, but I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't get a Blackberry co-op. Like I was just dying to get a co-op. Wow. And, uh, a bunch of my friends did and we'd be sitting in this auditorium and like one person, like at the very front would be kind of giggling with like a person, two seats behind me. Uh, and I'd be like, what's going on? And there's like, they, 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 because they were co-ops at Blackberry, they got early kind of, you know, the old, the sure. old Blackberries where you'd be tacking. They, they're yeah. tacking and we're like, what is going on? And like in real time. So anyway, I remember thinking like, how cool is that? Yeah. Um, but, um, like surprisingly not. Um, I think the, the, our funding has helped us the most in that, um, uh, we found financial services companies to be super open to talking to fintech. <laughs> and um, a lot of them have kind of put together um, fintech teams and partnership teams. And so as soon as we, we, we kind of got the funding and we were able to articulate the problem we were solving, um, that we, like we, 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 we've tried both paths. Like, Hey, we do business with, with BMO. We'd love to do business with you. Um, and I think that didn't get as that never got us as much traction as, Hey, we're this exciting fintech that just raised some money and we've got a lot of customers and we're solving this problem. Interesting. That seemed to get us in a, a lot more doors, which like intuitively, I would have thought that the large Canadian institutions would have been much better because traditionally, Within financial services, you know, it's really important to gain a brand, like in terms of customer brands. Mm -hmm. And the more you can get customer brands and different ideal customer profiles, generally, the easier it is to do that. But the Canadian brands haven't translated to the U.S. Um, as well as the problem statement that we're solving. Interesting. I love like just the fact that you're legitimate, right? You're we're a legitimate company. We've raised money from a couple of U.S. VCs in the fintech space. This is what we're doing. This is how we solve it. That's legitimized enough. They don't need to know that you've landed some part of a Canadian company. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I, and I think, I think the, um, I think the, the, like it's almost been interesting. Um, when we kind of lead with the, with the, um, top three banks, some of the feedback is a little bit like, well, you're a Canadian company. Do you understand the U.S., the U.S. problem? And the U.S. problem fundamentally is really, really similar. And, and we yeah. actually started with the U.S. problem as the the thing that we were solving because we always aspired that that was the TAM that we wanted to go after. But like Canada was in our our, our um, back door and, and like right, right beside us, like we live here. So we started, you know, talking to folks initially in Canada and took off really well. But from like a regulatory perspective, from a competitive environment, and even from like a, a like a customer perspective, um, really, really similar problems, but often when we lead with like, Hey, we're a Canadian company, you know, working with Canadian businesses, it's not as, um, exciting potentially, um, for us to get that first meeting than, than when we talk about us being, you know, fintech solving really needy problems. That's cool. 
Um, talk to me about the Series A. How much did you raise, and what was it like when you when you did that raise? Um, what did it change, and what were the lessons that you learned, kind of doing the Series A to get to completion? So, so um, James, our CEO, um, is an ex investment banker um, and an accountant by trade. So he led that, um, but asked me to kind of you know ride shotgun um, a lot of those um, pitches and, and through the whole process. So we, re- we raised $11 million US. It was led by FTC FinTech Collective out of New York. Um, and it was followed by, um, Fengate Asset Management in Canada, one of the largest asset managers here. Um, the, the process was, was really exciting. Like we met so many different VCs. And I think what we learned is that. At first, we were we were really trying to tell an exciting story that the VCs uh, that we thought VCs would be interested in, and then really quickly, what we realized is rather than trying to tell an exciting story that VCs would be interested in, like we have a really great business, and we were fortunate enough that we didn't necessarily have to raise. Um, we were in a bit of a unique position, so we thought, why don't we just tell our story and what we want to do? And naturally, like that'll help us choose the VC that makes the most sense as well, too. So like that was our our method of interviewing VCs. It was like, we're not going to tell the story that we think people want to hear. We're going to tell the story that of of where we want to grow and and of who we are today and where we want to go. And if that resonates with people, like let's get really deep and help them understand what they need to about us. and, And let's try and understand what what uh we need to about them but that was that that sort of change in in how we were thinking about it and how we were pitching um helped us get really really quickly down to the folks that that um made the most sense for us and who we made the most sense for which was which was um made made it a really fun close has it changed anything when when did you finish the close so we finished the we we finished it in May, um, and then we announced it in June. Um, yeah, it's totally changed things. I think um, it's afforded us the opportunity to um, even from a hiring perspective. So we were always aggressively hiring, but our candidate profile changed. Mm. We went from hiring like exceptionally talented, bright, gritty people to exceptionally ta- we started looking for exceptionally talented, bright, gritty people with subject matter expertise that could bring like that have done it before and could come in and bring processes and could bring experience and maturity to the business. Like one of the challenges I still have is like, I'm so close to Max and um, James and we talk, you know, a couple times a day and sometimes you fall into that like pre raise um, mentality where it's like a gut feel and a lot of things are like notional and emotional and i feel like this is happening and like we're talking like oh we should do like i'm feeling this maybe we should do this but like you know post raise we're really we're really trying to be a mature data-driven business and so they're they're great partners to be able to kind of remind me and say like hey you know maybe we should do the diligence let's talk to our people we hired really smart people um and so, so that that's kind of the difference from pre-raise post-raise is is just the experience that we've brought in and 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 the maturity that we're trying to drive in the business. So it sounds like you're going to be using most of the cash or some of the cash then for for building out your next A level team, right? For really scaling up the leadership in the next team. How many employees do you have now? Uh, we're just under sixty. Okay, 
So, so not a huge company yet either. That's a nice size still to be able to focus. Does with 60 employees, is the focus then to start going after more on the sales and marketing side? Or is it on the engineering side? What's the, what's the focus on people right now? Yeah. So traditionally we've been, um, heavier on the engineering side. Um, so we've been really focused on, on like, you know, what we mentioned earlier is you, you need to, you can't just say, I'm going to sell to the enterprise. <laughs> you have to have a product that, um, can be sold to the enterprise. And so it takes a lot of work to build, you know, uh, a configurable platform versus a customized platform. Like you see so many times that people say like, can you do this or how do we make it our own? And then all of a sudden you land that client and the entire dev and engineering team just has to build new stuff to be able to, it basically becomes a custom yeah. development operation for whatever your, your large customer is. So really fortunate that we've been focusing on building like an API first, uh, platform that it's componentized. That it's configurable, that it's scalable. Um, so a big focus on that side. We've been growing, I would say like our, 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 our business group, you know, like, um, finance, operations, human resources. And then also a big focus on go to market. I think one of the areas, you know, frankly, I underestimated. It's pretty easy to get to, I don't, not easy at all, but like it, 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 it you can get to three or four million dollars in ARR by kind of nailing a couple big clients, right? And then sprinkling some other stuff in there. But to go from like three or four to 10 to 15, you really have to back it up with pipeline, right? Yep. And, and you really have to back it up with um, like a go-to-market machine, a process. Um, so we've really been heavily investing on that. I think one of the places we probably personally, I didn't invest heavy enough uh, was around the marketing engine. Um, and we were getting so many referrals and, 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 um, you know, we were like our, our close rate is, is really, really high. Um, and now what we're focusing on is just continuing to be able to grow our top of funnel with like the right customers. And we know that like, we know who our buyer persona is, but we also know who our next three personas are that if we touch them and have them really interested in our business as well. Our close rate goes up. So like we're really starting to heavily invest in, in, in a real data driven kind of like, um, um, marketing engine. And we're already starting to see some, some really great impact from that. Interesting. And is it only on the financial services? Like, are you in the insurance side of things as well? Like, are you working with groups in the U.S. called like Advisors Excel or are you only on the, the, um, like the stock side of things or investment? Yeah. So, so anybody that would sell investments. So, so right now, um, we have the ability to compare any sort of investments. We're adding ESG and SMA into the platform this quarter, which is really exciting. Um, but, but mostly focused on the investment side. Interesting. I spoke at an, an organization years ago called the top of the table, a million dollar round table, but I'm pretty sure they're all kind of in the investment or the, uh, the life insurance side of the insurance side of the space, I think. But was it, how do you, you kind of touched on this whole, like if you land the clients and the engineering team just starts building up this custom software and I'd written down something around, is it hard to integrate? How do you resist the urge to say yes to all of those needs that those customers have versus trying to get them to use what you've already created? Cause, cause sometimes you're trying to get them to adopt or adapt a, a different, a different style of running the business in some ways, I would think. Yeah, I think like, so, so there's a couple things. I think that was probably the hardest transition to CRO, to be honest with you, is that idea of like chasing a quota and a kager versus like really chasing growth and trying to build for growth. 
And so naturally, when you're a sales leader, even a sales senior sales leader, like you can fall in love with a deal. And as soon as like, if you fall in love with a deal and you're a rep, it may cost you your year. But if, if you're a CRO and you fall, fall in love with the deal, like all of a sudden you're, you can have your, your leadership team now start to fall in love with that deal and it impacts, mm-hmm. you know, the process they're building and how they're executing. You can even have like, to your point, your engineering team fall in love with the deal and start solutioning how we can, you know, build to satisfy all this stuff. And the next thing, you know, like your roadmaps off the rails and a whole bunch of things. So I think the one thing is, you know, if there's situations where the client's not a fit for us, we're fortunate enough that um, we can say no as well. Like, I, I think the key to an enterprise deal is like a, a really good fit. Um, and there's no point in, in closing a massive deal if it's going to railroad your company and cost you, you know, two or three times as much, mm-hmm. six to 12 months sort of thing. So I think that's one is, understanding you know if the deal really makes sense and if you fit the need and if if your tool set does i think the the other thing too is um out of the gate integrations always the question and i think if you really know the use case and if you really know the value that you're trying to deliver that's that's what helps um keep the scope down or legitimize if the scope needs to be bigger, right? So if you're solving a certain problem and a lot of people come out of the woodwork and say, I want it integrated into this, I want it integrated into this, I want it integrated into this, like based on an MVP, like a minimum viable product that produces the most amount of value to you, um, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, like do those integrations really make sense? And when we go through that exercise and relate it back to the problem that, that the champion or the decision maker is usually trying to solve, um, a lot of times it just comes down to one or two integrations to like the customer master or, or like something significant, um, but something that is like reasonable for us and something that we've done before. And one of the things that we've done um, that I think is, is has been really bright by our um, product and, and engineering team is anytime we do an integration, we build it as a toolkit. So it's always reusable and documented. Yeah next time so yep. you know the first time we do a salesforce integration you know a client basically paid us for that salesforce integration but it was done using like an api toolkit that's repeatable that now we can hand to the house and say hey we can either be business architects or we can be fingers on keys but like he- here's what all the information and it's really easy to do that's the only way that this truly scales right how about yourself in terms of your your growth where do you think you're growing and I'm, I'm curious how the company had to evolve or change kind of you started pre-COVID about a year or so pre-COVID and then COVID kind of hit with a bit of a whiplash, I would imagine. How did you have to change? You know, are you a, are you a, a location-based organization? Are you hybrid now? Any changes around that as well? So talk about your leadership growth and then also the, the kind of the company in terms of where you're located and how you're building up. Yeah, it's been kind of funny because um, during during COVID, like, I think one of the most important things you can do is, is just hire awesome talent. Like if we can build the right team, I think that goes a long way. And that, that's, uh, one of the most important things I can do personally, I feel is, is really, you know, bring in the right leaders and help enable them to, to bring the right team in. And when we were hiring initially, all we hear, like one of the first questions people would ask is, are you fully remote? And we'd say, Oh yeah, yeah, we're fully remote. Like all good. No worries. And now like, the question we get is, 
um, do you have an office? And it's, it's kind of like, do you have an office? Cause I, like, I want somewhere to go. And then if, if we say we have an office, the next question is, but, but like, I don't have to go. Right. So, so, um, so, so it's a challenge, right? Because I, I don't blame folks. Like they, they want camaraderie. They want meeting. Like they, like now they, they, they miss people. They want to work with their teams. A lot gets done when you're together in the collaboration, but like work, work from home is so convenient. And yeah. It gets done and you can work on your own schedule and like you know we see a ton of productivity from people working from home so we've been really thoughtful about how we can almost have a hybrid um working environment so um, we've been really thoughtful about like trying to get the team together for example we just had the whole team out in halifax so all 60 people were out in halifax for for two days it was super focused around like culture and future um but it was like the first time most people have all um, ever seen each other because you know we've got some folks in Philly that we we've built out a hub in Philly. We've got some folks in Halifax. I've got most of the go to market people here in Toronto. Uh, so it was really nice to get together. But we do have to be really thoughtful about um, you know giving people the opportunity to work from home, but also facilitating like collaboration and and getting get them getting them out of the house and together as well too. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time on this as well. I just saw Elon just put a note out this morning that he's requiring all employees to show up at the Twitter head off or Twitter offices 40 hours a week now. Oh, wow. No, I didn't see Mandatory. that. He's like, we got shit to do and the world's getting yeah. real and we got to stay focused. I'm like, wow, that's hardcore. Wow. I think there is a bit of a blend with, you know, we need you to come in. We want you to be around. We have it available. But there's also that meritocracy of like, and if you can work and get shit done and be remote, that's cool. I just met with a um a client of ours the other day and I've done probably 50 calls with her over Zoom over the last few years and I met her in person and she's 5 foot 0 and, <laughs> and I'm six, I'm 6 foot 4 and I looked at her I'm like you're so tiny cuz on Zoom she's like large man she's big energy and she's a go getter yeah. yeah. and I I meet her in person I'm like you're this tiny little thing she goes <laughs> I know it's amazing that's <laughs> uh, funny yeah it's 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 so different and um like I always think it like like I I love seeing people's backgrounds like that's part of the thing I like um and, and listen I don't blame people for um kind of graying out their background or having the things there but I love when I'm on a call with somebody kind of peeking what's behind them because like you get a, a real different insight into somebody sometimes when you see like you know what's in their office and and what's important to them and you know pictures that their kids drew and stuff like that so so some of those things um. I liked uh, on the Zoom because you get a different glimpse, but um, it's also really nice to be in person with people it's, and have some of those hallway conversations. And, and um, yeah, so we're, we're trying to balance both right now. Are you going to open up a U.S. office at some point? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, we've just got um, so much momentum in the U.S. So we hired um, our head of marketing is um, out of the U.S. She came from Backbase. Um, super incredible, really excited about all the stuff Anna's doing. Uh, we just hired two strategic sales folks. Um, they came from eMoney and some other places in the wealth space um, down in Philly. And so we're, we're actively growing um, our U.S. headcount and, and having an, uh, like an official office down there is, is in the plans in the short term for sure. It's awesome. All right. Last couple of questions. How about your personal growth in terms of leadership? How have you had to adapt, um, you know, as a leader? Um, it, it's been kind of funny because I, I went from a little bit more of a, like thinking about things macro to jumping into a startup 
and almost having to be a little bit of every, like I was the like marketer and customer success and a product manager when we had to figure like, do, do you know what I mean? It became, yeah. it became like in everything, super tactical. Um, and now I'm going through the process of like kind of pulling myself out of that again, because we've, we've, um, on the go to market side, you know, we've hired our head of customer experience. Um, we've hired our head of marketing. We've got a director of sales. We've segmented it. Like we've built out really great high functioning teams. Um, and now I'm just kind of bringing myself out of those day to day deals and, and, you know, I like, still send a LinkedIn message to somebody sometimes and do some prospecting. And it's like, is that the best use of a CRO's time? Probably not. So, so j- j- just kind of getting back to, to thinking about the business strategically and, and helping my team um, kind of run their teams and, and have some autonomy and, and really kind of get the engine going. Um, so that that's just been a really interesting experience from like getting back into it and then really thinking about um, building a, a, a real big, a, a growth muscle that's that's repeatable. Nice. Now, will you need to do a Series B? Or are you going to be able to scale from where you are? Do you, is there any any thoughts thoughts on that? So, I think I I think the way we're thinking about it right now is uh, we have no plans to do a Series B right now. Um, we're really fortunate in that the timing of our raise, and also, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen is the deals for us have slowed down a little bit, um, meaning that it takes a little bit longer. Mm. So deals maybe that we thought we were going to close in the second quarter, you know, closed a couple months into the third quarter. But we're really fortunate that like we're, we're still doing a lot of deals, um, and, and doing some deals that we're, we're really, really proud of. Um, so we haven't, we haven't seen, uh, the deals, uh, the, the volume of deals or the number of deals go down. So I think the way we're going to play it uh, right now is just continue focusing on the U.S. market, growing there. I think we've been meeting some different strategics and, and different funds who are really excited about what we're doing um, and that that we think um, could be really, really cool partners, um, but no plans to actually do uh, another roadshow, uh, at least for another 14 to 18 months. <laughs> All right. I want you to lean back. Lean back a couple decades and go back to the 21 or 22 year old Rob, and you're going to give yourself some advice. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you were just starting on your career? Oh man, that's a really good one. Um, I think I, I think um, I was really fortunate to fall into a couple mentors, both like in CPG and then Salesforce, and. I think when when you're young, you just kind of think the world's ahead of you, like and 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 you know better than everybody, and and you're about to just embark on this this crazy awesome awesome career. Um, but I I I wish I would have um, sought out more mentorship, like proactively, and done it earlier and in a much more meaningful way, just because of the impact it, it it's made on me um, and and my career. So that that'd be my advice to anybody um, who's starting any sort of career is really just go out and, and try and find some, some mentorship and, and, and ask some questions and learn. And, and um, even if it's not, even if it's not specific to your role, like even if you want to learn about the next role or whatever it is, or, or just talk to people about how, you know, how they run their business. And, and um, so you can have an understanding of P and L's or, 
business decisions. I, I just think it's really impactful um, to have somebody helping you out. I, I when when I was the chief operating officer at one eight hundred got junk. I'm, this is now going back about eighteen years ago for me. I did have a formal mentor who was being groomed as the COO at Starbucks. And I think what you just mentioned, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a Loom video as soon as I get off with you, and I'm gonna send Greg Johnson a Loom video and just say thank you for the. He he just really put his time into me over the course of eighteen months with yeah. you know monthly calls and every quarter in person stuff. And I think it's time to drop him a Loom video. So maybe you can send one off to your mentor as well and say thanks. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea because I think um, just a little bit of time you know can make such a massive impact on somebody in their yeah. career. And I know it happened for me. So I think that's an amazing idea. Well, let's, let's both take two minutes this morning, send a thank you off to our mentors. So Rob Cernkovic, the co-founder and CRO for Cap Intel, thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me.